Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome Ben Lurie. Thanks everybody for coming. Can you hear me? Hello, Alex Reed's here. Hey, Alex. Um, oh, so I just wanted to say, so the last time I had a book launch, which was way too long ago, um, at the end of it, it was for my story collection, and at the end of it, this person in the audience that I had never met before raised their hand and asked if I had ever considered writing a picture book. And I was like, oh, uh, that sounds like a good idea. How would I do that? And this was Cecil. And then, so then she showed me how to do it. So this is all thanks to Cecil. So, so it's nice how it, it's like a circle. <laughs> yeah. All right. So now I'm just going to read this book. It's called The Baseball Player and the Walrus. This is, this is what it looks like. I was going to have it like all projected so you could watch and follow along but I just stared at the wall for a while instead. (laughs) All right. Once there was a baseball player. He played in the major leagues and made lots and lots and lots of money. People came from all around the world to see him play, but the ball player was unhappy, and no one knew why. At night, the ball player would sit in his house or his hotel room if his team was on the road and stare out the window into the night sky and sigh. What's missing from my life, he'd say. Then one day, the baseball player went to the zoo, and he saw all the animals. He saw the lions and the tigers and the giraffes and the elephants. And then he came to the walrus. Wow, said the baseball player. That sure is some animal. And he stayed there all day long, just watching it. And that night, as he lay in bed, he found himself laughing, remembering all of its antics. It's so great the way the walrus lolls around, he thought, and the way it makes those funny noises. And I love when it gobbles down all the fish, bobs its head around, and flaps its flippers. And the baseball player decided right then and there that he was going to buy the walrus. It turned out the walrus was very hard to buy. The zoo people didn't want to sell it. They were concerned that the baseball player wouldn't be able to take proper care of it. But the baseball player was determined to prove them wrong. He built a special enclosure in his backyard for the walrus. It had a huge pool and plenty of places to lie out, and a retractable roof in case it got too cold or hot. He bought lots of fish and barrels of walrus vitamins, and had fancy lights installed. Basically, he showed the zoo people that he meant business, and eventually he brought the walrus home. For a while, everything was absolutely wonderful. The ball player spent all his time in the enclosure. He petted the walrus and combed its mustache, told its stories, and taught it to play catch. And the walrus was happy. It smiled and laughed all the time. And the ball player was happy too. In fact, the ball player was happier then than he'd ever been in his life. But then the baseball season started up again, and the ball player got very busy. 
There were practices and practices and lots of away games, and he saw less and less of the walrus. And as the baseball player sat in faraway hotel rooms, he got sadder and sadder by the day, thinking of the walrus sitting at home with a lonely look on its face. It was just too much for the ball player to bear. I quit, he said to the team owner one day. What? said the team owner. You can't quit. I can and I do, said the ball player. I miss my walrus. I'm going home. And that was exactly what he did. But as it turned out, he hadn't noticed it before. It was very expensive to care for a walrus. Without a job, it was hard for the ball player to afford the fish, buy the vitamins, and maintain the whole enclosure. The baseball player held out for as long as he could, but eventually he ran out of money. And on that day, the zoo people came in a truck, and they loaded the walrus back up. I'm sorry, walrus, the ball player called after the truck. I'll miss you, I already do. But I'll get you back, one day I will. I'll do absolutely anything I have to. This is my favorite page, by the way. The walrus is being taken away, he's looking out the window. It's very sad. It's very sad. It's heartbreaking. So the very next morning, the ball player got up, and he took a very deep breath, and he went to the stadium to see the owner of the team. I'm ready to play ball again, he said. But it was too late. The team owner was mad. There's no place for you here, he said. You should have thought of this before you quit. Your baseball playing days are all over with. The ball player went home and sat and considered. I guess I'll have to get some other kind of job, he said. He looked through all the jobs in the classified section. I'm not qualified for any of these, he sobbed. In the morning, the ball player walked slowly to the zoo. I have to say goodbye to the walrus, he thought. But when he got there, he stopped. There was a sign on the wall. Walrus caretaker needed, it said. The ball player took the sign and ran to the zookeeper. I know exactly how to do this job, he said. Please give me a chance. I won't let you down. Okay, the zookeeper said. And now today everything is fine. The baseball player works at the zoo. He feeds the walrus fish and makes sure it takes its vitamins. He tells its stories and combs its mustache. And sometimes at night, the ball player turns on the lights, and he marks out a diamond on the field. And he gets out his old glove and gives the walrus his cap, and the two of them play a little ball. The ball player always pitches. He likes standing on the mound, and the walrus likes being at bat. And every pitch the ball player pitches, the walrus hits. And it's always a home run at that. Thanks. Thank you, Ben. Um, so for the last week when I've been introducing this event, saying, oh, you should come to this event, I said, you must come and experience Cecil Castellucci, the grand dame of YA novels. And we're so happy to have her here in Los Angeles. Cecil is a two-time McDowell Colony Fellow and award-winning author of 12 books for young adults, including Boy Proof, which recently celebrated its 10th year anniversary. 
today, today, 10 years, wow, 10 years. Um, and the other books include The Plain Janes, First Day on Earth, The Year of the Beasts, and A Tin Star. She lives right here in L.A. Please welcome Cecil Castellucci. This is book two of a, of a, of a two-book series. It's a, it's a duet. Um, book one is, uh, is called Tin Star, and it just came out in paperback this week as well. I'm celebrating four separate things. Okay, 10th anniversary of Boy Proof, uh, paperback of Tin Star, hardcover of Stone in the Sky, and I don't know if you guys read comic books, but I have a Wonder Woman uh, one-shot that uh, came out this week digitally. So it's a big, it's a big week. <laughs> So because this is, um, this is uh, book two, I'm going to read uh, sort of right smack in the middle um, from, uh, from Stone in the Sky uh, from a chapter that I think doesn't really give too many spoilers. Um, uh, obviously, from the, from the cover, you can tell that she is maybe no longer on the space station that she was abandoned on. So I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. And I don't think it's too much of a spoiler uh, uh, from the trailer to say that she goes to a planet. <laughs> so, so I'm going to read this and we'll see how it goes. Um, so what you need to know is that Tula Bain is the, uh, was the only human. Uh, she was a colonist. She was abandoned and left for dead on an alien space station uh, by the nefarious Brother Blue. Uh, now, uh, it, this is like a year and a half later, and she's had to flee the Yurtina Foray space station in order to save herself, which you got from the, from the, um, from the trailer. It was strange to be on a planet again. The sky confused me. The clouds cut the sky like sharp, violent objects. The sun was very bright, and the shadows were everywhere. Besson, unlike the moon I knew and remembered from Earth, was clear and brown in the daytime sky. I held on to Trevor, who's a robot, for support. The air was humid and heavy, and I could barely walk. Before me stretched a long, red dirt road lined with trees, long, spindly things with fungus-covered trunks and sharp, pointed leaves, and I could see purple fruit hanging from the branches, but I could not identify them, so I did not know if they were ripe. What struck me as I tried not to throw up was how much brighter the colors were here than on a ship or on the station. In the Arboretum, I thought I knew what the color green was. Seeing the vegetation on this planet made me realize what green really looked like. And it made me miss Thado and his rumblings about planetary flora and fauna. I quickly noted that the spaceport was a private one. It consisted of a single landing pad with an old, empty-looking building covered with vines that crept up the side of the walls. An old lure, a species named after Ben Lurie, <laughs> was sitting on the porch in a mechanic's jumpsuit, eating the purple fruit I couldn't recognize and spitting out the seeds. He didn't look up at me when I approached him to ask if he was the person I was to meet. He just stuck his hand out and pointed toward the exit. Way down the fenced lane, I could see a hexagonal house. There was no one else waiting for me, so I headed toward it to meet whoever had called me here. I dragged myself to the gate, holding on to Trevor. It was a slow process. Wherever I was, it looked rural, as though I were far away from any urban center. I couldn't hear any of the busyness that a city or a close-by dense population made. There were only the sounds of insects, birds, wind, and the cries of animals on what I assumed was an unseen farm. I took a deep breath. 
The air was real, overwhelming, sweet, sticky. There were new smells everywhere. Chemicals from the landing pad, dirt, leaves, rocks, animal manure. The sun was warm on my face, and it felt so much like my sun. How had I managed with only sun spa lamps? They were nothing compared to the real thing. My legs shook as I stumbled forward. I was not sure that I could make my way down the lane by myself, and Trevor was too awkward to hang on to for long amounts of time. He rolled too fast for my slow steps. I let him go as I moved to the side of the road and was sick into the scrub-like grass, and then I pulled myself up to hang on the fence posts and started dragging myself toward the house. It was a near-impossible task. But I had no choice. The shuttle had taken off immediately after I left, as though it didn't want to be here any more than I did. It was already long gone. Planet sickness. That's what I was suffering from. I'd heard about it before, in, for, before first in Kitsch Rutschuk's and then in the Tin Star Cafe. Travelers were always laughing and telling stories about new space voyagers who hadn't heeded the warnings of landing on new planets after long journeys. It wasn't the gravity of the planet that was making it difficult for me to walk. Although it was slightly heavier than the Yurtina Foray, I knew that it was a little lighter than Earth. It was the sky that I could not get used to. It was the birds. It was the wind. It was the trees. It was the sound that a planet makes. Even in the quiet of the country, it was deafening. I was so used to the dome of the station that the sky troubled me. The largeness of it and the color, an unreal-looking indigo, confused me. It was as though the sky wanted to scoop me up and fold itself around me one million times. As I got closer, I could see a lure standing in the doorway of a house, observing me as I approached, and I stumbled again. My inner ear ached, and the ground in front of me spun. My balance was off. I felt a wave of vertigo wash over me. I gripped onto another fence post on the path to the house to steady myself. Trevor had stopped so that I could catch up, and I pulled myself a little farther along the post, dizziness overwhelming me. When the fence ran out, I commanded Trevor to glide beside me so I could find my balance. Eventually, I just stared at the ground, so I did not have to face that sky. How long have you been in space? I looked up. The lure was female. She'd come down the road to meet me and was now offering me her hand. She was covered in scarves, so I could not see her face or her antenna or the form of her body, but I could tell by her voice that she was female. Not that I cared. I gave her my hand, and she put her arm around my waist to help me walk toward the house. I was graceful, I was grateful that I had someone to lean on, someone who knew how to go slow, someone who walked, not rolled. Years? she asked. I nodded, unable to speak for fear of vomiting again. And as we walked, it was as though I could feel the planet spinning on its axis. I could feel us orbiting the sun, which the lore called Blan. Everything was moving. You'll be fine in a day or two. You've got planet sickness. I nodded. You'll get used to it. I nodded again, wanting to believe her, but I felt so sick that I had my doubts that this feeling would ever go away. We reached the door at last, and she let me go in first as she opened it and ushered me inside. Please, sit down. Food and drink will settle you. She disappeared as I sunk into the couch. I looked up, curious for a clue about where I was. Before my vertigo overtook me again, I noticed that the room was tastefully decorated with sleek, angled furniture in all shades of blue. There were flowers on every table, every available table space, and in the corner there was a wooden sculpture of two lures head-leaning towards each other, antenna entwined. Red, yellow, and blue circular windows lined the one wall. The sun streaming through them made beautiful hues on the floor. 
She reappeared with a tray. Her scarves were a bit looser now, so I could see her face. She looked familiar. Usually, when I dealt with an alien, I knew within minutes what they wanted. On the Yurtina Frey, it was easy, but I could not begin to guess what this lure wanted me here for. With the scarves on her head covering up her antenna and the loose shift she was wearing, it was hard to read her body language. She could read everything about me. I tried to still my body movements and my facial tics so as not to give anything else away. I realized that I was in the presence of a master negotiator. Stop there. So, um, so Ben and I thought we would like interview each other for a minute, um, and then we would open it up to questions. So, one thing that I wanted to ask you, um, uh, well, is like kind of like what I'd said when I first uh, when I first um, read your uh, your first book, Stories for Nighttime and Some for the Day, which you should all pick up, um, was that. Uh, what I really love about all of your stories is that they seem to be ageless. They seem to be from like, um, you know, age zero to like a thousand, you know. And, um, and I wondered uh, how difficult or strange or new or what was different about writing a story that was particularly aimed for children. Well, I didn't really write it for children. It was, um, you know, I... I um I just, every time I write a story, it works the same way, which is that I just sit down and write a story, and then when it's done, I kind of see what there is to do with it. Um, so this was just another story that I wrote that seemed like maybe kids might like it, because it didn't involve a lot of knives and death, like some of the... <laughs> did you have any troubles? Like, was it, was, like, did you have any editorial challenges? Um, the biggest challenge, well, for this story, the biggest challenge was that in the original version, there was a lot of stuff about um, contract disputes <laughs> when, when, when he quit. And, and my editor insisted that kids wouldn't care about the contract disputes. And I was like, it's important, though. But, so we had to lose that, yeah. Otherwise, no, it was, pretty, it was pretty simple. The biggest thing was just picking which story to use because the ones that I had originally thought of, um, yeah, they had knives in them. Apparently, you can't have knives in children's books, like, at all. Just no knives. In picture books. Pictures books. Mm -hmm. Picture books. Yes. I think you can have them in, like, Peter Pan retellings with, like, cutlasses and stuff. Oh, yeah. Well, next time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so now it's my turn to ask a question. So, um, the one thing I was thinking was how um, you, this is the second of a two-book series, so I was wondering what it was like to be writing a second book and hearing reviews of the first book. Is that something that, does it impact the writing of the second book? Oh, uh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, no, because I already knew how book two ended. Like I had a very, I had, I mean, I didn't know how I was going to get there, but um, I had a very clear idea about what was going to happen. So that couldn't shake me in any way. Because by the way, some people are mean on the internet. I don't know if you know that. Um, just FYI, <laughs> in case you're putting yourself out there. Um, and uh, yeah, so so I, I felt pretty solid in where I was going, and um, and there's a very uh, there's a very particular um, arc for Tula Bane, who's the main character that I wanted to have, and uh, that couldn't shake me. Um, 
But I think one thing that I learned is that I think that like a lot of popular fantastical like fantasy or science fiction in young adult fiction is very romance heavy. And uh, I'm a I'm a pretty low rom. I mean, I've got romance, you know, in my life. But um, but I, 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 in my writing, I like I like it to be a little bit low romance, you know. Um, and uh, and that was something that uh, that I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> they want more kissing, you know. Um, and that was. Uh, that, so that, I, I don't know that it really made that much of a difference, except I think I wrote one swoony sentence that I wouldn't necessarily have written um, before. That was, it. that was the sentence. Yeah, that was it. It was like one sentence. I was like, oh, all these reviews. I must write this sentence. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, okay. So you, my turn. You have um, uh, talked a lot about how. Um, I mean, when we've had one thing that I really appreciate uh, about our friendship that um, that was birthed on the on the eve of your uh, of your uh, of your first novel, your first book launch, um, is that we've talked a lot about you know sort of process and stories and stuff. And one thing that you talk about is about how there's a lot of math that you really think about uh, writing, you know, um, with your stories. Can you um, can you talk a little bit about uh, your your theory about uh, no? <laughs> No, I mean, no, I don't think I can do that. Um, I mean, I can, but then someone's going to ask the follow-up question, which is like, how does that apply to the baseball player in the walrus story? And I'm not going to be able to do the math, so then I'm going to look foolish, Cecil. Is that what you want? Um, I mean, basically, I draw like a little diagram for every story, and the same, it's always the exact same diagram. Uh, I would draw it, but I don't have anything, and, but, um... Uh, and I don't even know why I draw it because it's the same all the time. But every time I have to draw the diagram in order to see it. And basically I just like look for what it is that the main character wants, like a surface desire. And then I'm looking for like a, a hidden desire that even they don't really know is there yet. And then, it, and then at some point those two kind of come together in like a fiery conflagration, you know, and then they sort of rework things. Is Susanna here? Susanna was in my class. Susanna has seen this diagram because I drew it many times. Everyone was like, "You keep drawing that diagram," but um. But it seems like yeah. it really lends itself to you know, sort of. You write very short fiction, and yeah. so it seems like that sort of um, diagram sort of like lends itself to short fiction. Do you think you could apply it? Like, do you ever think about writing something longer? I think I could apply it to something longer, but the longer it gets, there's the more blanks there are in the in the middle part. <laughs> Okay, so I'm going to sound crazy for a minute. Just once, I'm going to sound crazy. But I always think of um, stories of whatever length as, like, jewels. Um, and so, like, you start, and it's like a cube, you know, whatever. Like, that's the simplest one. And then you just cut more and more facets. And the more facets you cut, the longer the story gets. So the story itself is the same. It's just a matter of how long you want to draw it out and how, how many facets you want to cut to it. Um, Blah, blah, blah. I don't, I don't think that sounds crazy at all. I think that sounds absolutely right. I don't know about other writers. Like, doesn't that sound totally right? That it's just like you're, you're sort of like if you're doing a longer piece, you're just kind of focusing, focusing and, you know, like getting more sort of detailed, you know. It's my turn already? Okay. Um, oh, well, cause you, this was your first science fiction novel. I mean, I know First Day on Earth was... It, was, it sort of rode the line, but this was the first one where you had to actually like sort of create a, a whole world. What was that like? And did you have to interview anyone? <laughs> Good question, Ben. 
It's almost like we talked before we came here. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was really hard. Um, you know, galactic politics are not as simple as you would think, since we don't have galactic politics, but we do have Earth politics, and those are super complicated. So one thing that I really did was I took a bunch of history classes. Um, I'm sort of obsessed with taking Coursera classes, which are those mo- massive online college classes. And... Um, and I was really struck by uh, the uh, World War II and uh, the Vichy government, um, you know, and so that was a sort of good template for um, uh, there's a there's a galactic uh, imperium that takes over, and um, and so sort of the idea of a puppet government uh, like the Vichy sort of dealing with Nazi Germany was sort of a, a good template for me for my galactic politics. Um, and I think that probably when anybody's writing any kind of fantastical or uh, science fiction book, um, I think history is always like, I think you can probably trace back down the world to one particular uh, moment of world history that they, that they were interested in, and then instead of it just being like a blip in the last, like, you know, however long humans have been around, what's that, like 13,000 years since, like, Nuremberg, whatever it is, uh, you know, that, like, uh, since Neanderthals, that, um, that like, uh, you, it's it's usually, like, that world is sort of blown up from, like, one particular moment in, in history, and, um, um, the other thing that I did is because my parents are scientists is that I um, I really tried to get uh, you know the science sort of coming from a uh, from a from a correct direction you know so um, so if you were here for the tin star launch I actually um, it, as part of my thing I had an interview I interviewed a, a rocket an attitude adjuster from JPL um, to talk about sort of space science and um, you know and and the way that we travel through the stars now and what we know um, but we don't have faster than light travel we don't have those kind of things. So, um, so what I decided to do was sort of like springboard, um, you know, the things that we know and then just sort of crack that and just make stuff up. But one thing that was really cool and you saw it in the trailer was, um, you know, obviously spoiler, someone goes out on a spacewalk at some point (laughs) they're in a spacesuit. Um, and, uh, I actually, um, through uh, Steve Collins, who was my guest for Ten Star, um, he got me a connection at Johnson Space Center, and um, who uh, this woman Nicole, who is an astronaut wrangler, so she always have has one astronaut on the International Space Station and one astronaut that's in training um, to go up there. Um, and uh, so I had emailed her and I said, "Hey, I have a spacewalking scene and I have some questions." And so she um, she I, then I got an email from NASA and they said, you know. Well, this Rick astronaut Rick Mastracchio is going to talk to you next week, and so I got to actually interview um, uh, uh, Rick Mastracchio, and he had just gotten off the International Space Station the week before, and had done like a bunch of like um, EVAs, and so uh, it was really fun to talk to him because then I changed that whole chapter. Like if you read the the advanced reader copy, and then you read the chapter with the spacewalk in the hardcover, it's to- it's it's got more details. Oh, the most important thing that he said. Okay, so the question that I asked him was, if you had never been trained to go on a spacewalk, what would... And I said, I know this probably will never come up. <laughs> but, you know, in your line of work. But um, but what would be the... if you, And if you had to train someone to do a spacewalk in, like, five minutes, like, what would be the most important thing that you would tell them to do? And so he's like, oh, he said that was a good question. And, uh, and he said, he said, go slow. (laughs) Because, um, 
there's no resistance in space. You know, like even when we're in uh, here right now, like when you move your arm through the through the air, there's you know there's some resistance because there's some air. But in space, there's nothing. So um, everything goes super fast. So even if you think you're going slow, you're going too fast. So you should go slower than you think slow is. Um, and also that something to do with you should go side to side because, um, because, because your weight and the weight of the spacesuit is so heavy that like you could break your wrists if you try to like pull yourself up. You know, you can push off things, but like actually try, like you can't go up and down really. So you got to do a lot of side to side action. So just in case you're ever in that situation, you're welcome. <laughs> Um, okay, so um, so I guess my last question before we open it up to um, to the to the uh, to our, our fabulous um, audience here is um, okay. So you have a lot of stories, not just in the um, baseball player and the walrus, but a lot of stories in um, that you that you that you write just in general that mix friendships between um, animals and humans. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like what? Like what? Or like why? Um, I mean, I love it. I think it's awesome. It just when I started writing stories, they were very sort of scary, and they were always about like some unnamed man in some. It's like basically running around in a maze, and there's like all this anxiety, and they were just like. I mean, they were horror stories. And after writing a couple of them, after a while, it was just like it was so intense. I was like, I need to do something else. So I wrote the story about a duck. You know, and it was just like a joke, you know, um, but it was so much fun. So then I wrote a story about like a talking television and then the other one about the man who's friends with the moose. And it's just, I always look at it as it's just kind of like a venting mechanism. Not really venting. It just brings me back. Like it, it gets so bleak dealing with heavy stuff that it's fun to have talking animals. It's not. It's not like. I mean, like when you're dealing with the duck or the moose or the squid or like whatever it is. It's like it's not that it's not deep. You know, it's like it's absolutely deep. And in a way, I, I kind of feel. I always feel like we can get a little deeper because there's sort of like a, like a, like a distance. But you know, between it. And I, I, I just think that's so brilliant. I mean, I think the nice thing about writing about animals is that um, it's just like instant character. It's like character in a box. You know, like here's an animal and it's a squid. So. <laughs> There you go. You love it, even though it, it hasn't done anything yet. Well, maybe not this squid, but like a walrus. You know, you're on his side, whatever. whatever. There's no such thing as a bad walrus. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say something I was thinking about when you were talking about graphic? So the other day, this really has nothing to do with anything. The other day, I was brushing my teeth, and I dropped the toothbrush. And it was like falling, falling, falling. And then I reached out and grabbed it, like before it hit the floor, you know. And it occurred to me how weak gravity is. That like, I, I am faster than gravity, you know. <laughs> I think of gravity as like this big monolithic thing, but it's, it like hardly exists. Like we can beat it, you know. Um, That's what jumping is for. To beat gravity. <laughs> <Well>. <laughs> Well, actually, I don't remember that anywhere human and animal. Um, but the one that I really wanted... The fish. 
Oh, there was a one about a girl who finds a pair of sunglasses on the sidewalk while she's going to school, and she puts them on, and then there's, like, all these fish swimming through the air, and she, like, wanders everywhere looking at all the fish, and then the shark comes after her. It was kind of like they live, except with fish. Yeah, and school, yeah. And then the one that I really wanted to do didn't have a person in it. It was about um, a dodo. But it didn't, you know... It didn't end well. <laughs> so they said no. But wasn't there also the monster closet? Oh, yeah, there's one about, a, why am I giving away all my stories? There's one about this kid who's cleaning out his closet, and he finds this little monster, like, cowering in the back, this monster that's, like, terrified of the kid who lives in the room. Yeah. That's a good one. I could never really figure out the end of that. I really like that one. Anyway, was that? Somebody asked the question. Okay, other questions? I know you've got questions. What's uh, your favorite picture book and sci-fi novel? Uh, favorite picture book? Well, I know. We'll do both. You do sci-fi and picture book, and I'll do sci-fi and picture book. That's what I was yeah. Uh, uh, favorite picture book, um, uh, I really like Lily's Purple Plastic Purse, uh, if you've ever seen that one. It's about a girl who's got a fabulous purple plastic purse, and uh, she's kind of weird. And I like, uh, uh, I like, I like um, picture books about like the one sort of fabulous weirdo, <laughs> um, so that, that's that. And then science fiction, that changes all the time. Um, there is a uh, there's a science fiction book that I read when I was in high school. I think you read it too. It's by Walter Tevis, named Mockingbird, and it's about a robot who uh, wants to commit suicide and can't, and so he keeps rolling up to the edge of the Empire State Building, but because of the laws of robotics, can't, and there are still humans around, cannot roll itself off the off the um, you know, and uh, it's sort of the the mad story of what happens to this robot and humanity. And I really um, I read that when I was like 15, and then. That that got me into everything, Walter Tevis. But that's just today. Uh, my favorite picture book is Sylvester and the Magic Pebble. Have you read Sylvester and the Magic Pebble? It's about this donkey who finds a pebble that grants wishes. But then a lion appears and he wishes that he turned into a rock. So then he turns into a rock and the pebble falls away so he can't wish himself out of being a rock. And 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 then a long time passes. They have but, it over there, yeah. I think. They have yeah. It's really good. Oh, no, they don't have it now. Sorry. <laughs> Unfortunately, it, like the rock thing got really deep into my soul, and now whenever I write a story, half the time it's about somebody finding a rock, and I'm like, God damn, another rock. Um, <laughs> science fiction. Um, I really love Philip K. Dick. He's my favorite writer. It's hard to pick a favorite one. Maybe Ubik or the Three Stigmata, Palmer Eldritch. And I like Alfred Bester a lot. The Star is My Destination, and The Demolished Man. There's a lot of good books in the world. Do. Yeah. Do. That's good. Yeah. The story about the baseball player and the lawns seems like it's a metaphor for something. Is it? I don't think about those things. I don't think about those things. Yeah. I really try not to ever think about what the stories are about. Uh, it makes it really hard to write when you have to face yourself. You know, if you can just lose yourself in the story, then things happen. Otherwise, I just freeze up and I'm like, oh, God, I'm telling people about this and nothing happens. So it's probably about something, but I don't want to know. Have you ever had, have you ever had a 
have you ever had like a review? Because I know I have where like someone says something, they're like, clearly she was thinking this or whatever. And it's like, I'm like, oh, that's pretty smart. No, I, I wasn't. But yeah, actually, I kind of, that really makes sense. You know, have you ever had that? Uh, sometimes, yeah. yeah. Sometimes it's just like some crazy thing. I'm yeah. like, what the, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, Maybe but it's true. It's kind of like not our job, but then it's kind of interesting because it's like, oh, a you, they made me look smarter. Yeah, they <laughs> yeah. make you look smart. Yeah, but then B, it's kind of not so good when they're like, clearly they were talking about this and they're an idiot. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Oh, that's a great question. It is actually a duet, so it's only going to be two books. But um, there was one there was one character that was in uh, that's that's in the series. Um, his name is Hecklek, and I was really interested to see um, how he might have come to the space station. And so I wrote a short story about him. And then, even though I was done with Tula's story, um, I'm a bit of a nerd, and uh, as you can see, I'm wearing a space dress. Um, uh, uh, and I'm also a big gamer, and so I actually wrote a role-playing game. So it's sort of like, I, I feel like with the role-playing game, which is like, it's like a Dungeons & Dragons kind of tabletop role-playing game, where you can play aliens that go onto the space station and interact with the main characters. And I think for me, that was a way of having the story just continue and continue and continue and continue, because like... Everybody can like you know keep adding to that story you know um, but I I really I, like there was a there was a definite end to to Tula's adventure um, so yeah all right I think we're done Are we done oh with the short stories on tour dot com <laughs> oh my God are there any last questions <laughs> no all right well thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.